Today, we'll hear the other side of the story in the world of conservative politics in Alberta. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. So last week, as you probably saw, you may recall, we had Brad Tennant on the show. Brad is a former president of the United Conservative Party in Alberta. He's also a former senior campaigner and staffer for Premier Jason Kenney. And we had him on to talk about the situation in Alberta, the leadership review against the premier and why he finds himself in that position. So as you may expect, Brad defended Premier Kenney and predicted that he will easily survive the upcoming leadership vote that is happening in Alberta. Well, today we wanted to revisit that topic, but also to hear the other side of the story in Alberta. So also coinciding with that interview last week, I think it was the next day, uh, a familiar face reemerged into Alberta politics, announcing her intention to regain a seat in the Alberta legislature. And if Jason Kenney is indeed ousted as leader of the party in this leadership review, she has announced her intention to run as leader of the party. Of course, I'm talking about Danielle Smith. Danielle, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Candice. Lovely to be here. So just to give people your bio in case they don't know, uh, Danielle Smith is the former leader of the Wild Rose Party in Alberta. She's a former leader of the opposition in the Alberta legislature. In 2014, Smith attempted to merge her Wild Rose opposition party with the governing PC party led by the late premier, Jim Prentice, so the merger went sideways. Smith left politics where she has been away from. She's turned back into a journalist. She was a morning radio host, a columnist with Post Media. More recently, she served as the president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. And now she's stepping back into the political arena. And full disclosure, so that viewers know, I once worked for the Wild Rose. I worked for Danielle Smith on and off between 2010 and 2012. So all that being said, Danielle, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Great to have you back. You've been a frequent commentator uh, on True North uh, broadcast as well. So so you wanted to come onto the show to sort of take issue with some of the things that Brad and I talked about, or at least offer a different side of the story. So first of all, why don't we talk a bit about that interview and if there's anything in, in particular that you, you thought that something that Brad said that you just disagreed with. Hmm. You know, I um, it was my assistant who saw the interview and thought it would be good for me to come on and, and give the other side of the story. I, I must admit that I, I didn't watch the full interview. And so if you want to raise some things that he alleged that I could respond to, I'd be happy to do that. But the reason that I'm running is because I got asked to in Livingston McLeod, my constituents um, came forward and said that they wanted stronger representation. And I can understand why. I mean, I spent the last year talking about issues of energy security. And now we're seeing growing issues of food security emerging. I, I think you probably saw U.S. President Joe Biden uh, said to a, a NATO meeting that Americans have to be prepared for food shortages, which is just mind boggling to think that we're in a world where we might have food insecurity. And so in my in my constituency, it's very rural southern. And so we've got lots of ranching families, lots of farm families. So that's where a lot of our food producers are. And I'm hearing from them loud and clear. We've seen a doubling of fertilizer prices, a tripling of electricity prices, 60 cents more for diesel. All of this is having a huge impact on, on the cost of inputs. At the same time, because of supply chain disruption, many of them weren't able to 
uh, get their their uh, crop to market last year. So they've got marketed grain and a contract sold, but they can't get it delivered. One one farmer I just spoke with just finally got his his grain offloaded last week, and so just in time to be able to to buy into this market. But they're buying in at a really high rate. So th- these are the things that I'm concerned about. Same same as well when you look at where our constituency is situated. It's near the southern border. It doesn't include Coots, which is where the the uh, fr- the Freedom uh, Convoy ended up blockading, but many of the of the truck drivers in my riding I'm, I'm being told as many as 40 percent who normally haul, haul goods cross border are unvaccinated and that was the main issue for the freedom convoy that is still unresolved so if we're in a world where we've got food insecurity then we need to be talking about how we're going to eliminate those restrictions one of the uh, the grain traders that i spoke with he does you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of trade every year he can't get on a plane to go and do his business the way he used to in the past and yet he's had delta He's had Omicron. He's had antibody testing. His levels of antibodies are higher than mine. And I had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, yet I can travel and he can't. And he's responsible for helping to ensure a good portion of the world gets fed. That doesn't make any sense. So those are the kind of issues that I'm hearing about in my constituency that I that is has motivated me to want to get back into politics. It's it's so true. Like so much of the COVID policy just makes no sense. I was talking to a friend, and her parents live in Ecuador, and they were just told to get the first vaccine available. And the vaccine that they took was the Russian vaccine, but that doesn't allow them to travel. So so so, so they're protected in theory against COVID, even though as we know, so many people who are vaccinated, but but they can't come to Canada to visit their their kid, their daughter, and their granddaughter because the the vaccine that they took uh, doesn't align with with you know our standards. And so 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 many people are stuck in the situation, Danielle. You, you you raise a good point about how if the U.S. is actually facing food shortages or the threat of that, that could create a huge opportunity for Alberta. And yet Albertans are are, are being blocked. Well, I'll, I'll just revisit uh, quickly the interview that I did with, with Brad, uh, because we talked about the decision that was made by the UCP brass to change the leadership review vote against the premier uh, from in person as it was scheduled to be in in Red Deer uh, to a mail-in ballot. And and so when when that change happened, I know a lot of people were sort of crying foul, like, uh, you know, the ability of transparency and how it's going to work logistically. Uh, Brad made the claim that having that many people, I think there was 13,000 people who registered to vote and probably many more would register in 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 the weeks leading up to it. Uh, would have just been impossible, like even just in terms of finding parking to go into the convention center. And so he he claimed that there was the only option was to go to this uh, mail-in ballot. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to uh, respond to that and and let us know uh, what your thoughts on that uh, rationale is. Well, I think the premier knew he'd lose if he ended up going into that in-person vote. Um, He was recorded on tape saying that normal leadership reviews, people roll in the day after having had a bender and they just mark their ballot and there's a few grumpy people and then it's really just a matter of routine. But this clearly is not a matter of routine to have this many people sign up, prepared to pay $100 and drive multiple hours to get to a single voting station. I don't think he would have won it. I think there probably was a facility that they could have done an in-person vote. The uh, the Westerner Center is a place that does large concerts and uh, public events. So the idea that they couldn't have found an alternative venue in Red Deer, I, I, I don't actually buy that. And they had plenty of money too. So because they were charging, they could have hired people to man the stations and had multiple ballot stations. So be that as it may, what the constituency presidents wanted from the beginning was to have a vote in every single constituency so that it would be made accessible. And there were all kinds of reasons why the leader's office argued against it at that time. I think at a bare minimum, what they could have done is created ballot stations in eight of our major centers. We've got a population base in Fort McMurray, Grand Prairie, 
over in uh, the Lloydminster Cold Lake area, Edmonton, Red Deer, Calgary, and then of course in the South and Red Deer in, Me- in Medicine Hat and Lethbridge. And if they had allowed for AD balloting stations, then they could have had more people um, be able to, to vote within a, p- a pretty quick driving distance. My main concern with mail-in ballots, because I've been through this before when uh, with the Wild Rose, is that it is fraught with problems. It's very difficult to get the ballots out in a timely way, marked and returned in a timely way. Um, because rural addresses are often different than their mailing addresses, sometimes things go awry, sometimes things don't show up, sometimes uh, they get lost in the mail. I remember get, uh, I was commiser- commiserating about this with Corey Morgan, who's in the uh, the media as well now, because he was in the office after the, the vote came in. And there were weeks, sometimes months, where, where errant uh, uh, ballots would, would turn up in the mail. So I, I'm really worried that you're going to see a lot of disenfranchisement of rural Albertans wanting to vote in this process. And I'm worried that it's not going to have the credibility if uh, you end up with uh, t- you know hundreds or even thousands of ballots coming in after the fact. People are going to question the result. And that's not what you want out of a leadership review. You want a solid mandate for the leader so that they can have the confidence their party is behind them so that they can go forward. I, I, I just fear that this is going to be a bit of a schmoz and they made a mistake. I was calling on them to return to an in-person balloting, like I like I just described. But nobody nobody asked me what I thought. So I guess we'll see whether or not my prediction of it of it being a bit a bit of a mess turns out to be the case. Well, we, we, we just witnessed this, right? Like there's already, living through COVID, there's a huge decrease in trust in institutions just given the fact, like we were talking about the fact that uh, so many of the rules are contradictory. There There's so many hypocritical people who are making the rules. Uh, when it comes to the, the US presidential election 2020, the fact that they allowed mail-in ballots uh, in so many of the states led to this crazy situation. We didn't know the winner of the election for a week after election day. Usually it's determined that night or the next morning. And because of that, there's so many American who just don't trust the outcome of the election. They don't, they don't believe it. They don't think that Biden actually won. And, and so you're right that, that changing the, the rules this close to the game uh, will lead to a lot of people contesting uh, the results. I, I want to talk about the sort of underlying issues, though, Danielle. Why, why do you think that so many people in the cons- on the conservative side um, of, the, of the equation in Alberta are so dissatisfied with Jason Kenney? Why, why is it that so many people are calling for him to uh, be removed as leader and a premier of the province? I think there's there's three main groups that are unhappy with the, the premier's leadership right now. And first of all, I should say it's certainly not uniform. I mean, I, I was a, a supporter of the premier up until very recently, up until he made the decision to bring in vaccine passports in, in September of 2021. And he, he didn't need to do that. I'll get into that in just a minute. But he has done tremendous work on, um, on attracting business to Alberta. He talks about some of these big name investments coming here, Dow Chemical with a a net zero petrochemical plant. Um, You've got emphasis, emphasis of growing tech sector uh, investment that's happening in Calgary, Air Sprint, that is going to be a net zero hydrogen plant. We're going to be at the hub of a new hydrogen economy. These are all really exciting things and and they should continue. And you can tell that the premier is delighted every time he talks about those things. And and I I think that's that's very positive. But the the problem was that there were just too many flip-flops on on the issue of, of vaccination. I think people expected, especially because we're so close to the United States, that we would see Alberta at the very least 
follow the, the same lead that we're seeing in the red states in the US, principally Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome, but more recently John Abbott and others, is that there's a, a different approach that you can take to pr protecting people. Ron DeSantis uh, back last, uh, in the first summer actually, he did do a lockdown just like everyone else did in April, but then he started reaching out to the medical community and found the, the uh, authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, Jay Bhattacharya and Sinetra Gupta, uh, Martin Koldorf and Scott Atlas. And he held press conferences to say he was switching gears. He was going to do focus protection. He was going to make treatment with monoclonal antibodies widely available. And he was going to allow for life to get back to normal. And so I was watching that saying, okay, Alberta's got to be the next one. And instead, just when we should have been going in that direction, we ended up being hammered with um, a vaccine passport. He tried to call it something else. Uh, a restriction exemption program, but it was a passport. Nonetheless, he closed down and kept, uh, kept targeting uh, restaurants and gyms for some reason. He, he rejected the idea of focus protection. The kids have, have been in and out of school, in and out of sports, in and out of being able to have cohorts. And I think uh, the, the big issue that we have now is the, the, that they won't recognize natural immunity. And by doing so, you've got people, I think he could have solved this problem, if, uh, especially now that we've had Delta and Omicron and this new variant that is just spreading like wildfire. If people are getting a natural level of antibody protection from exposure, then we should acknowledge that. We should be pressing the federal government to, uh, to, to allow for that to be uh, the ability to get on planes and, and to, to, um, to recognize that for a cross-border traffic. So I, I think that the premier could do a lot more on that. The other part of the problem is that he just continued with the same language that we see out of the out of Justin Trudeau, calling it a um, initially a crisis of the unvaxxed and pitting vaccinated people against unvaccinated people when it was clearly not true. Everyone has the same potential risk of getting this virus. And so we need to really be moving to a test and treat type strategy, which they are doing in the United States. And I think it was unnecessary because unnecessary division. And when the premier says that the people opposing him are extremists and lunatics and bigots, he's, he's, he's not showing much empathy for what people have gone through over the last two years. There's a lot of people who are really hurt that they've had friendships break down and, and family break down and fighting with grandparents and, and, and siblings about whether or not to vaccinate kids and not being able to see their kids' hockey game, not being able to, to, to travel, not being able to do their business. I'm getting fired from work still. Like these are, these are things that are, are, are perplexing to most Albertans. They never would have thought that that would happen here. Uh, and it was really only the, the Freedom Convoy that caused the, the premier to, to change direction. He was initially saying he wasn't going to end any of these restrictions till the end of March. And fortunately with the pressure, he ended up switching gears. And I think people are, are grateful for that, but why did we have to go down this road in the first place? So that's that's the, the second part. But the third thing is that there is a real sense that this is a, a premier that isn't putting Alberta first. He's had lots of opportunities, especially with the equalization referendum to demonstrate that he's gonna get tough with Ottawa. We should collect our own personal income tax. We should have our own provincial police. We should collect our own employment insurance. We should start talking about whether we should create our own Alberta pension plan. All the things that Quebec already does because there's a hard line that we have to draw. The, the federal government now, especially with the, the, uh, with the alliance between Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh, are, they have Alberta in the crosshairs. They want Alberta, our energy industry, to reach a ludicrously aggressive target, 42% of em, uh, emissions reduction from 2005 levels by 2030. 
seven and a half years from now, at the same time as they're expecting us to be the principal funder of all of these grand national schemes for child, for daycare and for long-term care and for pharmaceutical care and for dentistry. It's got to be a hard no at some point. They can't just keep on pummeling our industry and then expecting us to pay the lion's share into the these national programs. And we've got to start pulling that back and, and acting like Quebec, saying, no way, you stick to your knitting. You've got a lot of knitting to stick to. You've got defense commitments through NATO. You've got foreign aid commitments. You've got settlement issues of Ukrainian refugees. We've got international trade issues that we've got to deal with as we're having a geopolitical alignment. There's lots to do without micromanaging how we run social programs. And I don't. we just don't get a sense that the premier is, is pushing back and taking the mandate that he was given. So th- those are the, the reasons why a lot of people are very frustrated. Well, just to pick up on that third one, it seems that uh, when the focus is on the sort of internal domestic issues in Alberta, the premier doesn't do very well on those issues, as, as you laid out very clearly there. Uh, when it comes to the external things, though, that's sort of where he's better set. Like you, you can look at some of the recent polls and see that the provincial NDP looked to be pulling ahead of the UCP. And, and that would be very bad news. Uh, it's uh, May 2023. 2022, 2023, sorry, that the uh, general election uh, will be. But then, you know, when you look at the price of oil has gone up, that's good news for Jason Kenney because it allows his, his government to do so much more and more people are work, uh, less less complaints. Um, but also this idea that you're not just running against Rachel Motley, you're now, you can now run against the the Trudeau-Jagmeet Singh alliance. That, that that sort of seems to help Jason. So I, I'm kind of wondering if you could if you could give us a little bit of a prediction or analysis of whether you think that, that he has the the numbers to survive or whether you think that this is the end of his time as premier? Well, it's certainly an advantage to him that it's now a broad-based vote of all members. I think there's um, 55,000 members that, uh, that that signed up. And, and that's a, a huge amount of interest because I think they were as low as 10,000 at the beginning of the year. So they they really had, uh, the, the party really was demoralized. So it has been energized and it really could go either way. But the, the main thing is that we need to have strong voices pushing him to go in the direction that we always thought he was going to go. I mean, remember when he first launched into his campaign, he got in the big blue truck and drove around rural Alberta and promised the grassroots guarantee. And so I haven't seen any evidence actually of of grassroots decision-making. I haven't seen any evidence that MLAs are given any autonomy to raise issues. And so those are the reasons why I'm entering as an MLA is that I've done the job before. I know how this province historically has treated its frontline MLAs and we don't do things the Ottawa way. I mean, the Ottawa way is everything centers out of the prime minister's office. And then there's the guys in short pants that go around badgering and bullying everybody to fall into line with whatever comes out of the, the leader's office as an edict. The way we operate in Alberta is that we allow for our MLAs to go out into the community, hear what the issues are, raise them to caucus. If the, if the issue is, is big enough in caucus, then the then the minister is charged with, with resolving the issue. And then if the minister can't resolve it, then it gets kicked up to the premier. It's, it's actually the opposite. And so this, this Ottawa-style top-down politics where MLAs have no role and are just expected to sit down and shut up is not, is, is not what Albertans expect. And so if I can be a voice in helping to create the balance of what it is this province should operate like so that we can get better decision making. That's what I'm going to do. 
Well, it's interesting. So, so the way that I, I don't know if this is accurate, the way that the media has characterized your uh, re-entry into politics is that it's sort of a uh, almost a divisive move that you're challenging the leadership of the premier and that you're sort of announcing your intention uh, to run as leader. We saw Jason Kenney himself dismiss your candidacy in a press conference. Uh, he called you a voice of division, and then a Twitter account run by uh, United Conservatives um, said that that you had. Uh, you know, uh, I'll just I'll just read what they what they said. I've always found it surprising that two people whose track only track record is losing general elections somehow feel that they have the answers. The Western Standard characterized that as nasty tweets from Kenny's crew. So um, I guess my question to you is, do you see yourself as a divisive figure in the UCP? Do you see yourself as someone who could potentially uh, fracture the party or are you someone who could continue to unite conservatives in Alberta? I will unite it. And I'll tell you a couple of things. Like, I, I think that the premier acts very undignified sometimes when he doesn't take, I mean, I've been advising the government over the last year on a whole variety of policy issues. I've had him on a podcast. I've hosted him for his first event coming out of, uh, of COVID the first time over summer. So there, there really isn't much point in, in trying to make me the enemy. I just wanted to put my name forward because people were asking me to, people were saying, why don't you put your name on the ballot? on that April 9th vote, because there's a lot of confusion about what a leadership vote is. And so I just wanted people to know, absolutely, if there is a desire to change leadership, I'm prepared to, to put my name forward for that, as is Brian Jean, as will probably be a, a dozen other people. It, you can't really run for a job that isn't open. You can only run for a position that may be. So that's why I've, I've devoted my efforts to Livingston McLeod. The thing I'd say about my riding in rural Alberta, and this is really important, is if you if you look at the poll results that you were that you were citing, the NDP is already ahead in Edmonton. And so we fully expect that they will sweep Edmonton as they did last time. There's only one UCP uh, cabinet minister there, uh, Casey Madu. In, in Calgary, they're also pulling ahead, which means they will win probably enough to form government with Calgary and Edmonton alone if these trends continue. But even worse and more surprising to me is that the NDP are polling at 32% outside of Calgary and Edmonton in rural Alberta. And in my area in particular, if there's a vote split, like there was before, they have a very strong candidate who ran last time from a prominent ranching family. The government bungled its release of the coal policy changes. And there's a lot of really angry people down here. Uh, I'm trying to run under the UCP banner because I want to keep all of the various conservative factions under one umbrella. That's what I learned from uh, from the events of, two, of 2015 is that we're at a point now in Alberta where there is such a strong united progressive movement coalesced around um, an, a capable leader and a formidable leader in Rachel Notley. There's not very many politicians who've lost government and managed to stay, keep their job to, to, to win to fight another day. So she's formidable. But the, the, the fact is that if we do see um, the Wild Rose Independence Party gain ground or, or Brian Jean decide to create a new party or Todd Lowen or Drew Barnes, those are other names here that have been kicked out of the UCP caucus talking about creating a new party. If we split the conservative movement five ways, this riding in rural Alberta is at risk of going to the NDP. So I want to do what I can because I, I have friends in the Wild Rose movement. I have friends from my former PC days. I was a PC long for, for many, many years before, before joining the Wild Rose for six years. And I um, and because they, the constituents came and asked me to run, that's why I felt like uh, I, I could be the one to, to make sure that this riding stays in this column as opposed to, to going NDP. And I think that's a, a very real threat and concern in other parts of rural Alberta. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. I, I wanted to ask you a final question here, Danielle, about this 
CBC opinion piece uh, that I saw written by a well-known Mount Royal political scientist named Dwayne Bratt, uh, where he is talking about your political comeback. He wrote that time has not healed the wounds of of the 2014 betrayal, as he calls it. Uh, You cannot come back from something like that. So first of all, I want to get your take uh, as someone who's worked in the media and and politics as well. Uh, What do you make of the CBC publishing opinion pieces or that uh, political scientists who are often cited as, uh, you know, outsiders and and people that are neutral uh, writing opinion pieces uh, accusing you of betrayal? And then also, uh, what's your analysis um, of that of that claim of that you betrayed Wildrose members and that you can't come back from that? Well, I'm not a political scientist like Dwayne Brad, but if uh, he was to go look at political history, he would see that there it's about 50-50. It is true that um, half of people who have, have changed parties have not been able to get reelected. My recollection is that about half of people who did switch parties were able to get reelected. Probably the most prominent example from history is Winston Churchill, who's changed parties three times. So it's, it's not necessarily um, the, the only deciding factor on why people choose to, to cast her ballot. And I don't think Dwayne Bratt was a Wild Rose supporter. So um, I don't think he was particularly hurt by my decision in, in 20, 2014, but there were a lot of people who were hurt. And I, under, I understand that. I, I, I took a lot of heat when I, I still wanted to play a role in public life, which is why I immediately went back on the, the radio when I was given the opportunity to do that. And I spent six years talking to people about the decision. The, I spent six years reacquainting um, them with me. Yeah, I spent six years learning a lot about the, the the concerns that they have. And so I've talked to many, many people since I made the announcement. And even before then, who said, yeah, I was really mad at you, but uh, you won me over on the radio. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm going to bring to it. I, I spent almost six years interviewing on every topic under the sun, interviewing everyone I possibly could on a whole range of issues. I, I also found that the call-in section was my favorite part because that's when you got to have some really raw stories being told about the, the, the decisions that were being made and how it was impacting real people. And so I developed, I think people thought of me more of as a, an opposition leader last time I was in government, in elected office, because that was the job I was hired to do. But I, I think that people need to be respected. You need to hear from all sides. You need to be gentle with people, because especially now people are very damaged and we, we need to be trying to chart a course that will bring everybody together. It's, there's been so much division over the last couple of years. And so I have a bit of a unique perspective having played that role for the last six years. So I, um, I know that, uh, that there are some who want to pretend that my whole career just exists from the brief time that they saw me in politics a few years ago. But I, I have done a lot since then. I've been a business advocate for, um, uh, for a, a, an Alberta-wide organization talking about some major investments that our private sector makes and helping them to try to navigate through the regulatory process. I've been giving speeches all over Alberta for the last number of years, hearing from different communities and groups and trying to take their issues forward. And I started my own business. So I was on the, the front line uh, dealing with all of the shutdowns of restaurants over the last few years and having to manage payroll and staff through that period of time too. So people grow, people change. And uh, the fact that people have come forward asking me to run, I think that uh, yeah, Dwayne Bratt may still bear a grudge, but I can tell you that a lot of my, my constituents are, are willing to recognize that people make mistakes. As long as you understand and learn from them, then they're, they're prepared to give you another chance. I mean, the human story is a story of redemption. We allow people to, to come 
come back into public life after they've made amends. And I guess we'll find out if people think I've made enough amends. Well, you come from a unique perspective as well that you cross the floor, switch parties from one party to another that are now merged together. So, so, so it's really one party now. And, and that's sort of what you, your, the vision that you saw back then. Uh, it is. But- and I, may I just add on that. I mean, the, the, I, I have been asked by others to, to try to lead a new party or to join one of the other parties. And I've said, no, because I think the UCP is the, is the right vehicle. Jim and I went about it the wrong way. Absolutely. But I think the aspiration of trying to keep conservatives up together under one tent was, was what we were trying to do. And the fact that, that conservatives are together now, and when they're together, they win. We, I want to do what I can to preserve that. Well, absolutely. I completely agree that conservatives must be united, especially in a province like Alberta. They need to be united. Thank you so much, Danielle, for joining the show. It's been great to hear your perspective. Great to hear more from you. And I hope that you are able to have the impact that you're setting out to have, because certainly the way that things have been run over the past few years, the, the mindset that has led us down this dark path and some of the most dr- draconian policies that we've ever seen in our history that needs to change. It cannot be the same mindset, the same thinking that gets us out of this mess. We need new perspective, fresh new thinking, and we need fundamental change across the board, federally, provincially, and locally. And I, and I applaud you, Danielle, and your efforts. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's Danielle Smith. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show.